going deep. I feel like Kalo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones or a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. They ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. Thank you so much. Capital is going deep, and periodically, if you've been listening for quite some time, first and foremost, thank you. But you know that we will do a bit of a confessional, if you will, about the state of our beloved Toronto Raptors, Canada's basketball team. And this will be somewhat of an intervention. Maybe for players, coaching staff in front office, or maybe for you as a fan who has struggled to get through watching the first four games with four really difficult games coming up, knowing that there was lots of hype and expectation coming in to this season. Well, should there still be or should we reevaluate our thoughts and beliefs on this team now that we've seen them play for just over a week? And we are just over a week away way from James Harden saying that he was going to rejoin the team and be a part of the Sixers this year. And now he's in Los Angeles and trying to be a part of the Clippers. What does that mean for them? And what does that mean for the trade market across the NBA and specifically in the East, given that Philly to me looks better, but who quite frankly cares what I think you will care what our guests think. Jesse Rubinoff, as you know, is a sidekick of mine for a long time. You can listen to him on the Sportsnet Radio Network, doing a great job hosting Sportsnet today. And also, you can find him filling in on Sportsnet Central as well. Joe Cacharo is my homie for a long time as well. We go back to the score. He is still there. I obviously am not, but I am an avid reader of his work. He has a great hardened analysis piece on the scores website. That's the score.com. And while you're listening to this on a podcast platform, spend some time to follow, subscribe to his podcast, pound the rock for your great basketball analysis, specifically Raptors. But like we're about to today, they bounce around the NBA. We go deep on all things Raptors and James Harden, yeah, we're going to talk about him on this episode. So Joe, Jesse, as you know, I often will lean on your counsel individually or collectively when we need a bit of a Raptors therapy session, if you will. Um, And I think we're at that point. The fan base certainly is at that point. Raptors Twitter is certainly at that point. A couple really bad losses. Losing to Portland, period, post-game is a bad loss, never mind when they're on the second night of a back-to-back. But you throw away a game in Chicago, which compounds problems because the upcoming schedule is hosting the Bucks tonight, then at Philly, at Wemby in San Antonio, which looks like a more difficult matchup than maybe you thought coming into this year at Dallas, who is undefeated, and then at Boston Celtics. For most people, 1A, 1B, the best team in the East, along with Milwaukee. That's uh, not easy. So blame me, fellas, because I was out here (laughs) writing on sportsnet.ca, 50 wins in play, let's go, undefeated in the preseason, the good vibes are back, we're making decisions in .5 seconds, and I forgot the football adage also works in basketball, that preseason is a liar and none of it actually matters. And we're into the regular season and it looks like last season. Joe, I'll start with you. How did we get back here so quickly? And outside of Giants and Jets, is there a more unwatchable (laughs) offense in professional sport? Uh, So to answer the second question, I'd say it's pretty close to a no. To answer your first question, how we got there is because, look, unfortunately, you know, vibes and (laughs) offensive systems aren't as important as talent. And this team, while maybe more talented than 
they showed last season isn't much more talented than that. And the margin for error when they're trying to win is still very small compared to what it was when they were, you know, reeling off 50 plus win seasons all those years in a row when they were quite better and and deeper and all that. I think it's just tough to milk many wins out of this roster because of like the offensive issues when it comes to roster construction without them playing very, very well. And quite frankly, they haven't played close to that. Um, I mean, you mentioned that that Chicago loss, which was bad, but you know, at the very least, not not excusing that collapse because it was pretty bad and the, the execution down the stretch was terrible, but at least you could be like, you know what? Objectively, if you go into that weekend and you think, look, they they lose a game in Chicago and a, a home game on the second night of a back to back to Philly, you think, all right, that sucks. You know, the the vibes from the one and zero start are gone, and they're one and two. But if you had looked at the schedule beforehand, I don't think anyone would have been shocked by that. Losing at home to the post Dame Blazers, who were on the second night of a back to back, losing at home to that team with a rest advantage, who are also, by the way, without Anthony Simons, who's probably their only legitimate NBA shot creator at this point in their careers. Like that, I was going to say it was baffling, but then if you actually watch the way the Raptors played in that game and how stuck in the mud this offense is, I guess it's not that baffling. Like I think Darko Ryakovich has good ideas. And I think the 0.5 offensive system and mantra is one that I get. And I often agree with, but I also think sometimes like, and, and it's honestly, it's not that dissimilar to what we talked about with Nick Nurse on the defensive end when we wondered how this guy who was so creative all of a sudden got so stuck in his ways when it came to a system that, you know, it was like he had the Raptors playing way too aggressive, way too ball, way too much ball pressure. They were giving up stuff on the back end and open three-point attempts. And you would look at it and be like, what is he doing? Look at this roster. Like you have OG Ananobi, you have good defensive players. You can be a little more conservative and be a really good defense. Well, now I feel like we might start asking those questions of Darko Ryakovich on the offensive end, because when you look at this roster and you say, okay, they're not good shooters, you can make all the passes you want, but they don't have a lot of advantage creators. And so a lot of these passes, as Jakob Pertl said post game the other night, are kind of going nowhere and not leading to advantages. Or given the offensive disadvantages this team has, you could go with a more basic conservative offense that it does just mismatch hunt. And maybe it is just throwing the ball to Siakam or OG on the block once in a while or this. And yeah, getting out in transition, that's fine. And moving the ball when you can. But I, I'm starting to think, and I know it's early and maybe I'm overreacting, that this roster just isn't cut out for the .5 system. I think when we looked at this team during the offseason and you account for some of the changes that they made, which weren't very many, like why did we expect this team to be any better offensively? Like I think... Because Grady Dick had a shiny suit. Right. Grady Dick showed up and you don't really... You can't expect too much from a, a rookie ever, really, unless your name's uh, Victor Wambanyama, certainly making a difference with the San Antonio Spurs. But that was never the expectation for Grady Dick. But it's a lot of the same guys. And I fully understand that the offense is supposed to be different. Like Joe mentioned, the, the point five offense, it's supposed to be different. But you just, you can't make it up. You can't overcome sometimes the deficiencies that you have in roster construction. And this team was horrific shooting the basketball last year, 27th in field goal percentage, 28th in three point percentage. So why would any of that change? It's not like they didn't have their fair share of open looks last year and they just didn't knock them down. Like they there's, there's nothing different from this team to have expected them to suddenly become a better shooting team. And the reality in the national basketball association, especially now because teams play so much faster. There's so many more possessions. There's so many more threes per game than basically we've ever seen growing up and watching basketball our whole lives. When you don't shoot the ball, well, you're immediately at a disadvantage. You then have to win the possession battle by a pretty significant margin to be able to account and overcome for losing the percentage shooting battle almost every single night. And that's a tough, tough thing to have to do. We saw that exposed last year, and that's why so many of their points were on the fast break and why they emphasize getting out in transition so often. But 
it's just too much to overcome when you're a really bad shooting team in a make or miss league. Like Dwayne Casey always used to say, you're going to have a hard time winning basketball games. That's just the reality. And it comes down to who the front office put on this roster. And the sooner they address it, the better off this team will be. So I went out for Halloween last night and I wore a Pascal Siakam jersey and I put Bristol board uh, alongside of it and I made that into a wanted poster uh, because uh, he has been somewhat missing. My question is why? Is it the system? Is it the player? Is it the lack of extension and insinuation that he was quote-unquote selfish last year? Is it the fact that maybe he and Scotty Barnes just can't function together? and the same offense. Uh, Joe, what's going on with Spicy P? I think it's a combination of all those things. Look, I've, I've been saying since the offseason, I think they're going down a bad path with Siakam here because when he did not make an all-NBA team last year and therefore did not qualify for the Supermax, or, you know, his, yeah, the Supermax version of his extension, and he qualified for the lower max, I actually thought, and I think a lot of people did, well, that's good news for the Raptors. Unfortunately, not for Siakam, but it was good news for the Raptors because he, the max he was now eligible for to be extended this past summer was actually more in line with his on-court value. And I thought, well, this is going to lead to the Raptors extending him. When they didn't, and when the, you know, all the reports out there were that they didn't even extend an offer, to me, you know, as a, a reporter or fan or like other people out there, I'm sure we all took it just like I did that, well, that insinuates to me the Raptors don't even believe he is worth that lower max extension. Because if they did, and this is the NBA, if you think a guy is worth that max money and he is eligible for it, you give it to him and you keep him and you retain the asset. And the Raptors didn't do that. And I that spoke volumes. But they also <laughs> didn't want to trade him because they're kind of trying to straddle this like two timelines thing, which rarely works. So... There's got to be the human element there of Pascal thinking, okay, well, like, you know, what's going on here? You don't think I'm worth this money. You know, you probably don't want to trade me. I'm not sure I don't want, it's not that I don't want to be here, but I also don't really know where I stand here. I've been a very elite player when healthy for the last few years, and I'm really the closest thing to a star. I mean, I am a star, quote unquote, in this league on this roster until Scotty Barnes figures his stuff out. And yet, you take the ball out of my hands as part of this new system with a new coach that is emphasizing everything but me and those matchup advantages, you know, I talked about earlier. Like, I think if you just add all that up, yeah, you're, it's, it's a recipe for a guy to get off to a start as shaky as Siakam's look. Now, that doesn't ex, uh, excuse everything. Like, I was tweeting the other night. Now, there were multiple possessions in that Blazers game where... The Raptors turned it over. Sometimes Siakam himself turned it over, and he straight up jogged back on defense. Like, did not even pretend to care about getting back. That stuff can't happen, and that's on him. But I do think there's a human element, too, where it's like you can't expect a guy to look as, like, laser-locked in and, and as sharp as they want Pascal to Siakam to be with all this other stuff going on. And, yeah, the offensive system doesn't help him because Darko can say what he wants about how this should help Siakam be more efficient because of like the way it's going to get him the ball and whatever. But again, no one else is creating advantages other than Scotty Barnes when he's pushing the ball in transition. But in a half-court setting, no one else is creating advantages. So it's the ball's not getting to Pascal Siakam in any better spots. It's just getting to him less. And when it gets to him, he's expected to move it quickly or make a decision quickly rather than taking advantage of the mismatch he might have. So I, I just think all in all, it's a very weird recipe if you want this guy to maximize his talent, it's a weird recipe. If you want to maximize his trade value, it's a weird recipe in general. And I don't know where the Raptors go from here, but I was saying from last year, especially if you watch the way the Beal thing played out in Washington and what they ultimately got for him. If you are a team in the middle of a non-competitive window and you have a you know, more veteran kind of max level star approaching free agency and you're on the fence about keeping them, you better trade them and trade them fast and trade them before their value starts to dwindle, which the Raptors have already missed the boat on that. 
because the season has now started. They would have got more value in the summer. But to me, I think they're going down a bad path. Maybe they don't lose him for nothing like Fred, but I, they're not getting maximum value for him if they move him. And it's becoming hard for me to see how an extension plays out based on the way this season has started and the summer went. They have three players like that. Pascal, OG, and I mean, Gary Trent Jr. is certainly not a star, but he would fit into a playoff rotation for a contender quite nicely. I'm very torn, uh, Jesse, and I see both sides of it, which really makes my opinion somewhat useless, but (laughs) here's why. For me, you have a player who you took mid to low in the first round, forced to play right away, developed via your G League system, Mm -hmm. ended up being third best player on a championship team in game one of that finals, was the best player on the floor with multiple Hall of Famers, has worked his way to becoming an all-star and someone who's in the conversation year in, year out, to be on an all-NBA team. If you're not going to pay that player, who are you going to pay? And to Joe's point, really, because of the voters, you were going to be able to pay him on somewhat of a discount. If a couple votes go a different way, and it's, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for Pascal to be all-NBA a year ago. I mean, I think he had a better year than, than Jalen Brown. So that's one side of it. But the other side of it, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, well, one, you don't want to have Joe Johnson-itis where you just pay someone because they're up and they, quote-unquote, say they deserve the max, even though you know in your heart of heart they're not a max player. And if you give max money to players that aren't max players, then you have to be right with the rest of your cap and the rest of your roster to offset that because the teams with actual max players have a baked-in advantage. And two, remember your why and your how. Pascal Siakam, when he got to the league and when he was making a name for himself, essentially he had no offensive game. He was beating his man down the floor. He was giving energy. He was being a facilitator with that bench mob unit. We haven't seen much of that this year on either side. So I struggle to see this one as black or white binary because I think there's some real considerations on both sides, which is maybe why we're stuck in neutral. Yeah. The the curious thing about uh, Pascal for me is that they, they, the way that they've treated him is just, it strikes me as bizarre because it not having negotiations with him on a new contract, sort of hiring a coach and, and saying, Oh, we're going to see sort of how Pascal Siakam fits instead of accommodating Pascal and hiring a coach that you think would fit in the system. Cause right now you're seeing exactly why I think the Raptors were sort of concerned and they were talking about it when Darko Ryakovic first showed up. Pascal thrives more in an ISO game. That's it's pretty clear. And you started to see near the back half of the Blazers game specifically, where they were reverting more to ISOs to try and get some offense because the rest of the offense wasn't necessarily working, but that's not the way that Darko Ryakovic wants to play. There clearly is not a, a fit there. And I, the more I the more I watch him and the more I think about it and the more I, I look at his age being 29 years old and if you sign him to a big deal eventually that that's something that I don't think would look that pretty. They're going to be forced, I think, to rebuild here. And it's something that clearly last year Masai wasn't interested in because he made the deal for Jakob Pertl sacrificing the first round pick for this year that is top six protected. So they might end up being bottom six. They might end up getting that pick, but you're going to be forced to rebuild if you're not going to resign Siakam, because if he's averaging 15, 16 points a game and you trade him, like, I don't even know what assets you're going to get back in return. So it's going to be a bit of a slog here for the Raptors moving forward. And it's just been curious in how the front office has decided to handle a guy, like you said, who they have drafted, developed into someone who has become, I don't know if you want to call him, he's definitely not a superstar, but uh, by some respects, a a star. The thing that's really interesting to me is if he is a star and you expect Scotty Barnes to also be a star, wouldn't you think that that team should be competitive? So one of those things doesn't square, right? Either Scotty's not a star, Pascal Siakam's not a star, 
or the surrounding pieces are just not nearly good enough to help propel those guys to being an actually competitive team. And if the Raptors are bad with Scotty and bad with Pascal, then maybe Pascal's just not as good as we thought he was. And they shouldn't resign him. They should, in fact, trade him and kickstart a rebuild. Or they can't be stars together. Yes. And before everyone listening to this loses their mind, the first player I'm going to mention is and was not a star, but was beloved in his franchise. But the Golden State Warriors had to move Monte Ellis for Steph Curry to be Steph Curry. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I wonder if keeping Pascal is blocking the progress of Scotty. And playing the way you're currently playing now is not really reaping the full benefit of either of them. Pascal's skill yeah, set. Yeah. And it, it's so funny. They're, and, and Joe, you've been around the team literally every day for the, the last little while. You know, there was the rumors and the rumblings of, you talked about two timelines of really, you know, two groups among the team. And, you know, the, the older guard that has been around and won a championship. I say older guys, they're not even old. They're just were the young guys when they won a championship and they happen to still be around. And then, you know, the, the new cro- crop, really led by Scotty, um, and, you know, the things not necessarily being copacetic between the two. And I get, if I'm, whether it's Pascal or Fred, who's being you know somewhat scrutinized and criticized and have won a lot of games in the city, and I'm thinking, man, if, if... I was doing what the golden child is doing. Scotty Barnes is doing. I would be heavily criticized. And in fact, if the golden child, Scotty Barnes is doing what I'm doing right now, he would be highly praised. And yet you're you're grading us on a curve and we're all on uh, the same team. I I just, I don't know how you square that potential dynamic when you're not winning because winning is ultimately, you know, the best deodorant for that type of stuff. Yeah, as Darko, as Darko said after the first game, right? Winning is effing fun. Uh, the Raptors need to get back to that. Yeah, I think it is a tough dynamic and it's a tough locker room dynamic to overcome. But, you know, that that's kind of the corner the Raptors have backed themselves into. And I'm not like, obviously teams can have success with, you know, a group of young players, a group of older players, if the mesh is right. But I think the most important thing is how they complement each other on the court. And I think the issue with the Raptors is that the talent doesn't necessarily complement itself on the court. Like, you know, them having a 29 year old holdover star and an up and coming 21 year old star is fine. There's like, you can make that work, but again, the skill sets have to make, like have to work and blend together on the court. And the issue here with the Raptors is their two guys I'm not sure that's the case. I had higher hope after Scotty's rookie year, um, you know, coming off the playoff appearance and everyone wanting Scotty to take that step as a sophomore. Obviously, it doesn't always work that way. Took the step back last season. I think after last season is when I started to really realize that I just don't think the Raptors can win on a shared timeline between those guys. I think for that to have happened, Scotty would have had to take a really big leap last year and Pascal would probably have to reach another level. And, I, you know, Scotty might be taking that lead this year. It looks like he is, but I don't know how many more levels Pascal is going to hit, and I don't know how quickly Scotty can get, you know, to anything close to his ceiling. I just don't think they can win on a shared timeline anymore. And maybe it doesn't necessarily have to be a fault of anyone. Sometimes it just doesn't work out that way, especially when the skill sets, you know, create some redundancy and don't really complement each other. And again, I, I hate to keep coming back to it, but... Like, the, the we know the Raptors front office, are, like, are a smart bunch. Between Masai Ujiri, Bobby Webster, the scouts. And like, I'm not saying they suddenly became bad basketball executives. But it does boggle my mind a little bit, given how smart we know this front office is, that they either don't see this stuff or refuse to believe it. You know, it, like, refuse to believe what they're seeing. Because, again, if you get to the point where you start thinking, we can't win on a shared timeline between these guys. It's not going to overlap. It's not going to work. And one of them is a, you know, veteran star approaching free agency that was extension eligible at a fair rate this summer that we didn't extend. Like, I I just don't get how you entered the season with him still on the roster and not traded for a package of maybe younger talent and picks. 
especially when you also have OG Ananobi in the same spot. Like, I don't know, man. It's just, it, it's really baffling to me. Well, they're now on their third head coach. <clears throat> if we're being honest, they inherited Dwayne Casey um, and, and gave him a uh, longer leash than most thought originally. Uh, obviously, they've moved on from Nick Nurse. Canada basketball Twitter um, now believes that they should have just hired Jordy Fernandez uh, and, and not uh, Darko. But it, it's been four games. It's hard to really assess a coach in such a small sample size to start their coaching career. But my immediate concern is twofold. One, I hate when in a coaching hire, any hire in particular, you oversteer in relation to what the other coach was. Oh, this coach was, you know, a player's coach, so we need a disciplinarian. Or this coach was an offensive coach, and so we need a defensive coach. How about just get a great coach? You know, we looked at Dwayne Casey as a defensive coach, then we looked at Nick Nurse as an offensive coach until we didn't anymore, and then we looked at him as a defensive coach because of the box and one. And I don't know, what's Eric Spolstra? What's Greg Popovich? Like, what was Pat Riley in the – they're just great coaches who can coach, who can coach multiple styles in multiple ways, um, multiple players from multiple eras. And so when I heard the messaging of, <laughs> of Darko essentially not being Nick Nurse, like everything that was a positive was – it was because it was the diametrical opposite of the person we had before. It's like – are you looking to get back at your ex? Are you looking to have someone to lead your franchise into the future? And so uh, my worry is that uh, the coach is not, my worry is that the coach is not necessarily in relation to the roster. It's in relation to the past. Yeah. That's one of the curious things I think with, with this front office is like, did you go out and, and get a guy that you think can actually take this team to the next level. And I wonder how long of a leash we're going to give Darko in this market. Like, yes, it has not been very many games. Uh, The offense has not looked good, but clearly there's going to be some semblance uh, of a learning curve here. And it does strike me that the, the players now watching this team, it almost feels as though they're trying to do what their coach wants instead of relying on their instincts as really good basketball players. And it's working against them. Like they're, they're trying to get to the spots where their coach wants them to get to. They're running their sets properly that their coach wants is just not working out and they're not making decisions that you think would come that that are natural to them as guys that have been playing basketball their entire lives and, and I just wonder like at what point here is it going to be be okay Darko's philosophies are not working versus the team that they've put together is just not good enough and and I wonder if it's like the 25 game mark is it the 50 game mark does he get a season does he get two seasons like 48 hours before the trade deadline yeah like that's the type of thing where I think I'm going to struggle with over the course of the season because yeah you mentioned off the top DJ like some people had pretty significant expectations for this team and if you were someone that came into the season with significant expectations and they underperform if you're someone that evaluated the roster and were like, oh, this team has a chance to win 50 games, then a, a big chunk of that responsibility is going to have to fall on the head coach, is it not? Yeah. And so, like, it, it kind of depends. It depends on what side of the fence you, you fall on. Do you fall on, okay, the team is clearly not good enough because this is the second straight coach where this personnel has struggled, or is it, this new offense structure just is not working. He's trying to do something and, and not he's being too stubborn and he's trying to make it work with a, with a collection of talent that isn't best suited to working this way. And that's something that I think we're all going to have to try and figure out over the course of this season. I'm just curious how long it's going to take because there, there feels like, and you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, but it feels like there's already this pretty significant consternation when watching this team. A lot of that comes back to, to the offense, but it's been ugly through the first few games of the season. Joe, yeah. is he wrong? Oh. No, I, I was going to say, I, I thought Jesse made a great point when he was talking about um, the players kind of doing what their coach wants. And you can see that, like them trying to process that as opposed to playing with their instincts as good basketball players. Jesse also mentioned, like he wonders how long, um, 
the leashes for Darko in Toronto, even like from the fans' perspective and the publicly, like I wonder how long that leash is in the locker room. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's very easy when a coach is new and it's like a week into the season to talk about how, oh, we're staying together. I think Pascal talked about it yesterday after practice. Darko has talked about it after the losses so far this season. Like the most important thing is we stay together. We stick to the system. Like we keep working through it. We learn together. We grow together, all that. And, and that's that's fine. I get it. And like teams have to say that stuff. And I'm sure right now the Raptors believe that they will stay together because it's very early in the season. But what happens if one in three turns into one in seven? And like, you know, I obviously don't want that to happen, but we talked about that schedule. They're one in three. They've got a Bucks Sixers back-to-back, three more road games after that. And when they come home, two of their next three games are against Milwaukee and Boston again. So this can spiral out of control pretty quickly. And it's one thing to preach about staying together and the players talking about, are they still like, you know, they're sticking to the system and they just got to go with what coach wants. It's one thing to talk about that when you're one and three. It's another thing to talk about that when you're like two and 10 and it feels like the sky's caving in on you. So I'm really interested to see, like, I'm not at all suggesting, you know, Darko would be on the hot seat 12 games into his head coaching career. I don't think that's the case. I think they will let him grow in the job. And I think that's the right thing to do. But what the front office thinks or wants and how the fans feel is very different than what the locker room feels. And that's what I'm interested to monitor is like, do the players let go of the rope at some point? Do the players lose faith in what Darko's preaching and this whole togetherness thing if this thing spirals out of the control? Because based on the way the season started and what the schedule looks like, unfortunately, it is kind of set up for it to spiral out of control pretty quickly. Well, and I wonder what the ripple effects of the James Harden deal have in terms of how they change the perception of the landscape in the East and of the value of the player. Now you have a team in Philly who has potentially more assets. And I think quite frankly is better today than they were to start the year uh, motivated to make a run and to keep their star happy, Joel Embiid. And we know he has a relationship with Pascal Siakam and we know nurse has coached him, although I'm not necessarily sure how that relationship ended, but even of course, in any trade, somehow the Oklahoma City Thunder end up with more picks. Uh, you know, they have assets, and I, I wonder if, you know, this moves the Raptors to really clear the deck. Do you think the movement that we've already seen this year changes the thought process on what Toronto does? Joe? I'm not sure it changes it right now based on how Masai operates. I don't think he lets that kind of change his strategy immediately. But I do think it could change things because if you look at, you know, the moves that Philly made, like a lot of people talk about the cap space they helped clear for next year because they traded a guy who had a player option for next year for four expirings. They can get up to like $55 million in cap space before re-signing Maxi. But I think what makes it really interesting is that the assets they got, like the extra picks, the fact that they got a few mid-sized expiring salaries makes them ripe for a win-now trade later this year before the deadline. And if they are in the market to do that, the Raptors have a couple guys in Pascal Siakam and OG and Nobi that could definitely, and, and you could probably argue OG skill set-wise probably fits that team better, but still, either one of those guys, you plug them in to a team with Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey and pretty good supporting core there with a coach that won a championship only four years ago. Like that team can definitely win a title. So I think it definitely changes things because I think there's now a team out there who is going to be in the market to make a win now trade this season that it really makes sense for Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi. How much Philly would give up for guys that are expiring? I'm not sure, but Again, the reports are that Philly actually wouldn't mind trade, like if they make a win now trade, trading for an expiring guy anyway, so that they still preserve that cap space in the summer. So we'll see. But I, I definitely think it changes the equation in terms of um, how valuable Pascal and OG are to a contender, like a very obvious contender out there. Well, and the other thing we know about the NBA is wait a long, wait long enough, and there will be another disgruntled superstar who wants to move. So what the landscape looks like now is not what it might look like in a couple weeks 
for a couple months. I want to get into the Harden trade and the implications for all three franchises because you have to weigh what it means to the Thunder as well as the Clippers and the Sixers. I know, Joe, you wrote about what it means for all three teams on the score. But first, I just want to take a higher level look at yet another big name player forcing his way out of this situation when theoretically they shouldn't have much leverage, but evidently here we are. By the end, fellas, I was just like, I don't care anymore. Just tell me where he's going and when. I don't care about the updates. I don't actually think he's good anymore. But the timeline on this is June 28, Harden opts into a player option with the intention of working out a trade. That player option, $36.5 million. So it's not like he wasn't paid well. Clippers were mentioned at the time by Woj as not being interested. July 18th, Daryl Morey comes onto the radio in Philly, confirms the trade request, and says he's going to honor it. August 12th, Woj reports that all of a sudden the trade talks are ending. They're not moving him. Two days later, in a media event for Adidas in China, remember China's relationship with Daryl Morey, James Harden calls him a liar. Uh, now, we also have to remember that the Sixers were investigated multiple times for somehow getting James Harden to agree to a deal that we think is, if not below market, below the max that he could have signed for at the time. And they were found not guilty of that. They were found guilty of, of other stuff in terms of how they got P.J. Tucker. October 4th, Harden shows up to camp then disappeared for a couple weeks, various reports as to why. End of the day, he is now in L.A., where it's essentially a South California AAU team with Harden being 32, Paul George being 33, um, Westbrook turning 35 uh, this month, um, and and Kawhi. Or sorry, Harden's 34. Kawhi is 32. And... Uh, my thing is, like, James Harden has literally done this three different times with three different franchises, and he's an incredible player. He's an MVP, but I don't know if he's made any of those franchises better when he left them than when they got there. And I don't know if any of those franchises hang a banner for him at the end of his career. So can you be a Hall of Famer without being one of the best and respected players of your individual franchise. But I guess he's the greatest example of this. But this is a symptom of the era where I was all for player empowerment. And now I think it's stretched too far. And we're just in an era, Jesse, of player entitlement. Yeah, man. Honestly, over the course of uh, the summer until Damian Lillard got traded, uh, this is where I completely turned and seeing every single day there was another update on Damian Lillard who all of this was by Damian Lillard's making. And it was outspoken part. about the fact he would never go anywhere else. And right. he thought everyone else who was running super teams was lame. Honestly, like all three of us love the NBA a, a lot. I've been watching it for a long, long time. But I'm starting to really get turned off by the fact that these superstars think they can just dictate where they want to go. And it's... There's, these are these are notifications and stories and things that I don't want to see from guys who are making 35, 40, 50 million dollars a season. I understand that there may have been a disagreement or transgressions that uh, Daryl James Harden thought Daryl Morey uh, did to him, but I think there's a certain way that you you handle yourself professionally and the way that both James Harden and Damian Lillard handle themselves. I, I don't think is something that I really want to see a lot more of in, in the NBA. It's starting to really irritate me. And when it comes to Harden and his actual effect on the Clippers, like I still think he has something left. I still think, you know, having four guys, despite their ages uh, of that quality, probably gives them a better chance to do some damage than before the trade. But how many times do we have to see Harden in big spots come up short on different teams and disappear in big games before we start to say like, this guy is just not, it's not him as the kids say, right. When, when the going gets tough, like what happens to James Harden? And well, he doesn't have to worry about that now. Cause he's not gonna have the ball in big spots. Right. Right. Like it's, 
really? So it, it, you almost would be better served having someone out there that would want, would want to, to have the ball and want to have the, the spotlight in that moment. Someone who thinks they can take advantage of a situation like that. So I, I, I think even though they're probably better today than they were a couple of days ago, I, I still do think when push comes to shove in the postseason, like James Harden might get exposed and that might end up working uh, against the Clippers. Um, but again, my big point is that I just, I just, it's driving me a little bit nuts to be seeing this happen every single season. We're dealing with another superstar who's like, ah, I don't like it here anymore. This relationship's soured. I'm going to make a stink until I end up somewhere that I want to be. And you mentioned like, of course I was all for the player empowerment. Who wouldn't be at the, at the beginning. But when, people take things too far and they take advantage of situations. I think that's when fans and media and other people start to sour on that sort of behavior. Well, Joe, and I, I, I do think there are a lot of people who have always been anti-player empowerment and, you know, LeBron was a true free agent and they're out here burning his Jersey because he yeah. decided to go to South beach and work with his friends. Like who among us wouldn't want to do that. And so that's what annoys me is because I historically have said, listen, these players are drafted into a situation because of the CBA. Really you're spending the first five to seven years of your career in one scenario without much agency. Yeah. When they have the opportunity to use leverage, they should, but now, and I think it started with me with Anthony Davis and Rich Paul, where essentially my guy just took half a year off and said, I'm going to that specific team because the guy who owns this agency is also there. That's when I start to have an issue because it's not like they're saying I'm in the back end of my deal. I have one year left. If you're not going to pay me, move me to someone who will. They're doing this. At the front end of the deal, Kevin Durant had multiple years left on his deal. James Harden is opting in and then saying trade me. And I, I, I just don't think you can have your cake and eat it too in that way. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Obviously, pro player empowerment. And I think, you know, there's also every situation is different, right? Like with Dame, I definitely was against the fact that he thought <clears throat> in addition to asking for a trade, he could also handpick his destination despite having four years and $216 million left in his deal. Definitely was not pro that, but at least with Dame, look, he had put in a lot of years there. I think we all knew it was time for him to request a trade. And I have no problem with him trying to get where he wanted to go. He, you know, maybe went about it in the wrong way, but like, that part I get. It's like, look, he put in a lot of years in one place. He wants to go to a specific destination. Him and his agent, you know, with his agent works for him, are going to try to make that happen. But I also like the way that situation resolved was resolved because in the end, it went kind of the way I thought when I, when I said some teams should just call Dame's bluff. And the Bucks did that, and kudos to them. And Damian Lillard, because he's a competitive guy that wants to win finally, looked around and said, I get to play with Giannis. Yeah, maybe you know, Milwaukee's not Miami, but... I have a chance to compete for championships immediately and for a few years, and I like that. And I'm now going to be fine here and play well and, and be Damian Lillard. I'm fine with how that entire situation went, even though it was a little tricky at times. James Harden is an, a, another situation entirely. Fourth team in four years, three trade requests in between that, a bunch of postseason no-shows on top of that. Like, he is a different case unto himself. Jesse uh, mentioned, you know, about when the going gets tough. The funny thing about that is I often say, whether it's in podcasts or in some of my videos of the score, even in writing, I always say about James Harden, when the going gets tough, James Harden gets lost. Like that's his character. And we have plenty of evidence to like to prove that. So I I'm pro player empowerment, but I also get what you guys are saying in that it's kind of been taken too far in some respects. I would just, I guess, push back a little and say that I do think we need to kind of evaluate it on a case-by-case -case basis because while the Dame thing was annoying in the summer, and yes, it was a bad look that he wanted one specific location, I think the way it was resolved is also a testament to like who Dame is at the end of the day. It's like, yeah, he may have wanted to go one place and tried to get to that place because who wouldn't? But at the end of the day, that's a guy that just wants to hoop and compete and he will make it work wherever he lands. I don't think we can not, not forget. Don't think. I know we cannot say that about James Harden. Well, I think that the next question before we wrap is, how will this work? I mean, let's move the Thunder aside. Sam Presti gets another pick. 
Uh, people always throw in these pick swaps as if they don't matter, and then we get to that draft, and we're like, ugh, that pick swap, that's going to be rough. So uh, I I know it's a little bit softer than just giving away a first-round pick, but they still always uh, haunt you, it seems. For Philly, I mean, they they had to move the player. They get rid of a headache, and, you know, Nick Nurse no longer has to lie about what he thinks James Harden's fit is going to be with that team. And then there's, for me, a real packing order where – Joel Embiid is the clear star and alpha of the team. Maxi is an ascending star and his essentially sidekick and pick and roll partner. And then you have like 10 role players who all do different things. And I'm including Tobias Harris, who's not paid like a role player, but ultimately at this point is an effective role player with the Clippers, I literally think it's an AAU team because it's a collection of stars who may not necessarily fit. They gave away some of their depth. I think P.J. Tucker, quite frankly, is going to help them in the playoffs more than James Harden is going to. But you've got four stars who all kind of need the ball. James Harden has never really been a comfortable catch-and-shoot player. Russ can't shoot, but at least he does other things to help you. Which one of them is going to the bench? And if if they're starting all of them, what does that mean for man who's starting to really uh, blossom? Does Norm Powell continue to have a role? Because uh, he also needs the ball offensively. Uh, how does this at all work schematically, Joe? So I think the Clippers and the Sixers both got better. The difference is that I don't think the Clippers got better by enough and boosted their title odds by enough as you would expect by just, you know, if someone told you, oh, this already fringe contender added a guy who led the league in assists last season and averaged 21 points on crazy efficiency. Because if someone told you that, you'd be like, oh, that team is already a contender and they added that guy. They're, you know, they boosted their title odds like crazy. But on paper, the Clippers didn't because James Harden doesn't actually raise their ceiling that much. Uh, Harden is probably better still better than we give him credit for because of some of the other extracurricular stuff, but he is a diminished asset at this point. He just is. And the it boils down to father time and maybe not taking care of his body the best way to combat father time. But the fact is he cannot blow by his guy as consistently as he used to. And he's now more reliant than ever on step back threes. And when they're falling, it looks great as it did a couple times in the playoffs. But when his jumper's not falling and his jumper's never been very consistent, it leaves him in trouble because he doesn't get to the paint and penetrate defense as often as he once did. He doesn't open up the passing lanes that he once did, even though that he did average 10 plus assists last year. He's still a phenomenal playmaker. It's just that he doesn't create advantages as consistently as he once did. And you could argue, well, he won't have to because he's got Kawhi Leonard and Paul George on his team. But I would argue that for as good as James Harden still is, he's not going to be good enough to justify the amount of times he's going to take the ball out of Kawhi and PG's hands. And I know the Clippers, for like basically since they got Kawhi and PG, have talked about wanting a point guard and a table setter for Kawhi and Paul George. But at the end of the day, you want the ball in those guys' two hands, in those two guys' hands. And how it gets there, sure, obviously that's important, but like you just need a sound guard to help facilitate the offense and get the ball to them. And in the playoffs, anyway, you want the ball in Kawhi's hand running pick and roll. You want Paul George doing the same thing. You don't want James Harden pounding the heck out of the rock and wasting half the possession before it gets to Kawhi or PG. I, I, I think James Harden is still good and maybe it would have been a better fit elsewhere, but I don't like him in a spot where he's taking the ball out of the hands of better players at this point in their careers. I just don't think that's a good recipe. The Tucker thing I think is, is a little underrated because he's actually had some success guarding up against Nikola Jokic success for, you know, Jokic's standards anyway. Um, and I, I think the Clippers are a little better equipped to actually match up with Denver now, not saying they'll beat them, but they're better equipped to Jokic historically has shredded the Clippers. I think Tucker being there um, gives them a, a better option to guard him in a bit of a funky way. It also gives them like better five out lineups on both ends of the court. So I think there's ways the Clippers are better and better equipped for the playoffs right now than they were yesterday or two days ago. But the Harden thing I just don't think is going to work at the highest level. And I personally, I don't understand why they've spent five years thinking they need this star point guard or whatever. It led them to Russ. Now it's leading to Harden. Like, no, you need Kawhi Leonard and Paul George to stay healthy. And if they do, 
those are the two guys the Bulls' hands should be in. Yeah, they spent five years continuing to double down and double down and double down on making this work. And really, I think their greatest sin would be giving up Shea Gilgis Alexander and a thousand picks for PG. It, they should have got a former All Star point guard that uh, spent time in Houston and Oklahoma City and had a signature shoe that nobody wore. His name is Chris Paul. They should have got Chris Paul and teamed with Ty Lue and not uh, James Hardy. Harden. Uh, Jesse, uh, last word to you. W- what is your read on the deal? Yeah, I think it's a, a lot of moving parts. Um, it, it's interesting to me from, from really both perspectives because I, I wonder, like, in Philly, like, they – they weren't getting anything from Harden. So they got a bunch of pieces back that I think like five of those guys in that deal are going to be pretty serviceable to them. And then obviously you can use it to flip for a guy like potentially Pascal Siakam that Joe was, was talking about a little bit earlier. Like they now have enough assets to be able to really make a significant move to bolster Philly's chances in the Eastern conference because you weren't getting anything out of James Harden at all. And then on the flip side, like there's just, there's just a lot of, a lot of big boys in that Clippers lineup now. And you start to wonder, okay, like there's only so many shots. There's only so many possessions to go around. I know that Harden in the last, specifically the last four or five years has really made his bread uh, with his assist numbers. But like Russ does that a lot too. He puts up a lot of numbers as well. And, and yeah, to your point, like it almost feels like the Clippers, missed their their opportunity to really propel the organization forward by just not holding on to Shea. Like how how bad does that look now? Like to to not have a guy of that caliber and it almost feels like they're just finally at at their wit's end, like grasping at straws to finally get to a point where they they've never gotten to. And they're like, okay, let's just finally go all in, pull out all the stops, do anything we have to do. Because who knows how much longer Kawhi's knees are going to hold up. Who knows how much longer Paul George is going to be at a decently effective level. Russ in the same thing. Like they're four pretty old guys by NBA standards. And it feels like one last kick at the can for the Clippers. Yeah. The last dance season, they would say, listen, we're not getting Kawhi without getting PG. So you get PG and you figure it out later. And PG this year is balling. But man, you got to win that oh man. You, you got to win or it, it, it didn't work. You have to win. And they yep. really, quite frankly, haven't come close. This has been fun. Uh, we will see how it all plays out. So much to get to. We didn't get to the fit of CP coming off the bench for the Warriors or the start of Wemby in San Antonio. The terrible start of the Grizzlies or the amazing start of the Mavericks. The NBA is the gift that keeps on giving. And for me, the gift is... I don't have to worry about the Maury versus Harden feud anymore. So thank you for that. Thanks for listening.